Welcome to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Elise Dorita. Today's guest is Scott Hunt of Armstrong Teasdale. Scott spoke to us from St. Louis, Missouri, where he's based. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Scott. Thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure to be here today. I really look forward to speaking with you. So we're going to jump right in. Can you tell us about your background and why you decided to become a lawyer? Sure. I grew up in central New York and spent my whole uh, life there. And I attended a liberal arts school in central New York called Hamilton College, which was a wonderful uh, environment to to learn and to pursue my uh, secondary education. And, you know, my time in Hamilton really increased my appetite for further education. So that law school at that time seemed like a logical extension to uh, to my existing secondary education. Um, you know, as, as far as why I became a lawyer, my mother had worked in a law office in a non-lawyer capacity, so I had some exposure to lawyers growing up. But unfortunately, I don't think that I have any real uh, life-changing event or an addiction to a Perry Mason TV series to point to the reason why I wanted to become a lawyer. So once I decided I wanted to further my education beyond Hamilton, I attended the University of Florida Law School. And one of my uh, favorite classes at UF was the fundamental of tax law, which is taught by a professor, Dennis Kelsey, who seemed to do the unthinkable. He taught you how to read the Internal Revenue Code while making the class extremely interesting, um, primarily through, through use of his superior wit. Well, in Gainesville at University of Florida, I learned that the University of Florida had one of the top LOM tax programs in the country. So uh, upon completion of my JD, I decided I would stay on and get an LOM in tax. So that's kind of my educational background. Right. So New York and Florida are kind of a far ways from Missouri where you are now. How did you get to Armstrong Teasdale? Well, upon graduating from UF with my JD and OM, I began looking for permanent employment, and I had a number of opportunities, and ultimately it came down to a decision to join the IRS and the National Office in Washington, D.C., or join Armstrong Teasdale in St. Louis. I had, during my undergrad time, spent some time in Washington, D.C., working on Capitol Hill as part of my education, so I had some exposure to Washington, D.C., and I did like it, but I ultimately decided or thought that I wanted to end up in private practice, so I decided that I would take the offer from Armstrong Teasdale. Um, at that time, one of my best friends growing up happened to be playing baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals, so that made the decision somewhat easier. Of course, he got traded one month after I accepted <laughs> the job, but I still decided to stay with Armstrong. That's awesome. <laughs> so do you want to tell us a little bit more about the firm? Can you give us a 30,000-foot overview of it? Sure. Uh, Armstrong Teasdale has 234 attorneys with offices in five different cities, St. Louis, Kansas City, Jefferson City, Denver, and Las Vegas. I think our, our culture is best exemplified by our mission statement, always exceed expectations through teamwork and excellent client service. I think Armstrong is a great place to work. For instance, last year, 
2017, we handled 189 pro bono cases totaling in excess of 8,600 hours. Personally, I function in the tax area, focusing on uh, many types of tax issues, but primarily on exempt organizations and employee benefits uh, using my LOM background. So you also do a lot of pro bono work we were just mentioning. We'd like to learn more about the firm's pro bono program. How did you become the co-head of the firm's pro bono efforts along with Patrick Kenny? Sure. In title, I am the co-chair of AT's pro bono practice, but uh, my co-chair, Patrick Kenny, deserves a great deal of credit for making the AT pro bono program as strong as it is today. Of course, I think I would also be remiss if I didn't recognize the the prior achievements of uh, Ted Knoll and George Von Stamlitz, who were two of our predecessors in maintaining the Pro Bono program here at Armstrong. Uh, actually, you probably are aware that Armstrong Teasdale was a founding member of the Pro Bono Institute in 1996, and I think that was primarily through the efforts of Ted Knoll, who I just mentioned. As far as the current arrangement, uh, as you mentioned, Patrick and I are co-chairs of the uh, pro bono program, and Patrick is is tireless in attending to all the details required to keep a pro bono practice this large running on all cylinders. As far as the day-to-day operations go, Patrick oversees all litigation-related matters, and I handle business-related matters. So when we get an inquiry from a potential pro bono client, you know, depending on whether we characterize it as litigation or, or business, we steer it to, you know, one direction or the other. I wish Patrick was here today to share some of the successes AT has achieved on the litigation pro bono side, but um, he, he's not available. Right. So what in your background or personality sparked your passion for pro bono and access to justice, which is different from being a tax lawyer for sure? Yeah, Absolutely. Well, early in my legal career, I was fortunate enough to work with some business lawyers here at AT who served as directors on you know, high-profile nonprofit boards in the St. Louis community, and they instilled in me the benefits of giving back to the community. Based on these experiences and working with these individuals, I quickly realized that you know these people took the time out of their work schedules and the personal lives to give back to the community without financial reward. Most members of the legal profession are, are so blessed to work in a profession which can be financially rewarding, but you know, more importantly, can be personally rewarding. It gives you the opportunity to help people, especially those in need, most of whom did not have the same opportunities that we did through our lives. You know, I personally can remember getting a great deal of help in my life from others, sometimes from complete strangers. So, you know, I come to work every day with an intention to help others. Thankfully, many of those people have the ability to pay me for helping them. But Armstrong allows me to help others without having to charge them. So I I could spend, you know, the rest of our time talking about the benefits of providing pro bono services above and beyond the opportunity to give back to the community. But, you know, let me just give you a couple of highlights of benefits I think that pro bono, providing pro bono services provides. I think it gives you the opportunity to, you know, meet truly fascinating people 
who devote their professional lives to helping others with no real opportunity of financial gain. I've met some truly amazing people. It gives you the opportunity to learn more about societal problems and ways to solve such problems. Pro bono services gives you the opportunity to develop and sharpen your legal skills for young in, for young attorneys desiring to practice tax law. You know, preparing applications for tax exemption is a great way to learn how to prepare tax forms and interact with the Internal Revenue Service. Great. Yeah, it seems like um, through this work, you're able to pay it forward and make these great relationships and also develop all these skills. So Absolutely. What, what is your best pitch for why lawyers, including business lawyers, who aren't litigators, because a lot of people think of pro bono and they kind of just think of litigation, uh, to get them to do pro bono work? You know, I try to approach it from the human angle. So when we're presented an opportunity from a pro bono uh, client on the, from the, on the business side, I, I will go to my colleague and tell them who the potential client is and the mission of this particular organization. You know, usually that is enough to tap into that person's desire to help someone out and give back to the community. They don't really ever need to use the hard sell factors or features such as telling them that Armstrong Teasdale provides credit for pro bono services or that a lawyer has an ethical obligation to provide pro bono services. I find that given Armstrong Teasdale's culture, many young attorneys come to me looking for pro bono opportunities. So, you know, I don't have to go out and beat on people's doors saying, hey, will you take this case? So do you think you use the same tactic for um, lawyers who say that they're too busy and they don't think they have enough time because there are demands uh, that they feel like they have to, I guess, meet in their billable work? Yeah, it's a little bit of a, a, a different sell, I think, in that particular situation. Um, you know, obviously, unfortunately, there are some individuals that just are too busy and just never find the time. But I, I think when you can tell tell those people, some of those people that are maybe a little bit of a harder sell of sitting on the fence of some successes you've had. Some of the organizations you worked with point out some successes that they can see in the St. Louis community. They say, you know, you know, I want to be part of that. I want to, I want to help some organization out that can achieve something that's noticeable for the community. Great. So you are also pretty busy yourself with your paying practice and your pro bono work. How do you balance that and spend your time? Certainly, at at times, it's a challenge, but like all of us, we need to balance all the competing interests for our time in our in our lives. You know, that whether you're an attorney or regardless of what your profession, we all have those competing interests. You know, is it, do I devote my time to personal versus work? If it's work, in the work context, is it billable versus pro bono? Um, you know, those are difficult decisions, and again, I think you need to find that balance. I personally hope that the time that I spend providing pro bono services instills in my my children the need to give back to the community, whether you are a lawyer or an ordinary citizen. You know, it's important that I hope certainly that my children recognize that they need to give back to the community. So I try to expose them to, you know, some of the nonprofit organizations I work with or you know, and the, the nine nonprofit boards that I currently serve on, I try to give the 
my kids exposure to what those organizations are doing so they can see the importance of giving back. That's great that you're instilling that in the younger generation as well. Is there anything you wish you could be doing more or less of? Well, um, I think that certainly, you know, providing more uh, pro bono services is something that, you know, is always I'd like to do more of. Um, You know, I think that there are other opportunities on the horizon for uh, pro bono opportunities that, you know, I think that we can certainly expand upon. For instance, um, in 2017, Armstrong started a program in conjunction with the Legal Services of Eastern District of Missouri, another um, you know legal services organization, and the in-house legal department of a large uh, client of Armstrong Teasdale. Um, I believe that, at least in St. Louis, that in-house legal departments are an undeveloped source of pro bono legal services, and in this particular case, I think that was true. This organization had a number of in-house lawyers and those persons had a desire to provide legal services, but they didn't have the appropriate vehicle to do so. So we set up this program whereby we trained the in-house attorneys how to handle pro bono matters and then work with them in conjunction uh, in providing the pro bono services to the particular client. So, you know, it's kind of a program in its infancy, but we hope to roll that out to you know, other clients with in-house attorneys in the future. Great. So in my research, um, I learned about food deserts, which I knew nothing about actually before, which I'm glad I know about now. But for our listeners, could you tell us what food deserts are? Sure. Um, The USDA defines a food desert as a low-income census tract where a substantial number of residents have low access to a supermarket or grocery store. So as you, unfortunately, St. Louis has 15 identified food deserts, um, which results in a recent study indicated that affordable food is not guaranteed to more than 52,000 adults and 14,000 children who happen to live in one of St. Louis's 15 food deserts. Um, Thankfully, We have a pro bono client who was founded by a gentleman named Jeremy Goss, who's a real go-getter. Jeremy uh, recognized, learned of the existence of these food deserts in St. Louis, and developed, founded this organization called The Link Market. As we talked about, the fact that St. Louis suffers from the existence of these food deserts, uh, in fact, the, the disparity in uh, the St. Louis population living in food deserts is 233% higher than the national average. So obviously we've got a a major food desert problem in St. Louis. And it's resulted in child poverty rates in St. Louis being 148% above the national average. And the food desert manifests itself in different forms of malnutrition, whether, and that ranges from starvation as well as morbid obesity. So we have a lack of good quality grocery stores in St. Louis, which, you know, leads to both underfed and overfed. You know, you don't have quality food in the few grocery stores. In in some of these food deserts, they have grocery stores, but they're not quality grocery stores. So the idea is that 
the link market is going to improve access to healthy, affordable food for hungry people in St. Louis living in a food desert. So what they are is a pretty neat idea. They establish modular grocery stores, which are going to be placed at stations along the Metrolink, which is St. Louis's uh, light rail system. So persons that are riding on the Metrolink on the light rail can stop at the different stops along the way and visit one of these modular grocery stores established by Link Market, and they can pick up good food, good quality food at affordable prices, and they'll have the opportunity to learn lessons on healthy eating by participating in excuse me, different cooking demonstrations that might be conducted at the Link Market. And it's more fascinating that Link Market has established a network of more than 65 local farmers and over 200 community gardens, which are going to be a source of the variety of the fruits, vegetables, and other foodstuffs that are sold at the market. So it's going to be using locally grown, fresh, in most cases, produce and food to be sold at these modular markets. And then Link Market is also, in an effort to reduce food waste, they've established a partnership with the St. Louis Area Food Bank, another known, well-known 501c3 organization, so that any food that is not sold at the Link Market will be donated to the food bank and then redistributed to St. Louis residents in need. It's in its early stages, but it really has some wonderful opportunities. That is an amazing initiative. And, um, yeah, I obviously didn't know about this because this isn't something that had affected me growing up because I'm lucky enough that I've been privileged. But um, I think it's something that we definitely need to bring awareness to um, because, like, we live in Washington, D.C. There's kind of hard markets to get to, but, you know, you can walk everywhere. It's kind of accessible for everyone. But, I mean, in other areas of the country, it's obviously a bigger problem, and I think it's great that you're shining a spotlight on it. Could you talk? Yeah, I think, you know, if successful, it's it's certainly a program that could be replicated in other parts yeah. of the country, but it's, it's a great idea, and hopefully it will take off. Could you talk about the pro bono work you've done to support this program? Sure. We've, uh, you know, helped them with establishing necessary corporate documents and corporate procedures and policies, establishing the necessary corporate governance for the organization to function. Uh, We've assisted them in applying for exemption from the Internal Revenue Service and uh, to get a sales tax exemption from the Missouri Department of Revenue. Um, And we've looked at, uh, reviewed a couple of contracts for them with various service providers. So that's kind of been the nature of services thus far. Great. Um, I hope it continues on to thrive as it has now. So what are some other examples of pro bono cases that are particularly meaningful to you? Yeah, I could probably talk for an hour or hours about many of these organizations I've had the pleasure to work for, but I've thought of a couple that I talk about today. Uh, the first is an organization called Pianos for People, which is, you know, in and of itself quite a catchy name. Um, they have, they've received some national recognition. I think they were 
there was a segment on the Today Show probably within the past year about this organization. It's really, it's really a neat organization. So their founders are uh, Tom and Jeannie Townsend, who unfortunately uh, lost their son tragically at the age of 21. And their son, uh, Alex, was very interested in music and the arts. So they thought that one way to honor Alex's legacy was to establish an organization that would promote music and would go about doing so by donating quality acoustic pianos to financially challenged families and other social welfare organizations and encourage recipients of those pianos to, you know, engage in greater creativity, self-esteem, empathy, and interest in the arts. So what they do, their mission is to receive, solicit donations of pianos that aren't being used. In many cases, they're in disrepair. They accept these pianos, they fix these pianos up so they're functional, and then they turn around and place them into homes of, for the most part, at-risk children who you know, need an artistic outlet to curb issues such as anxiety, depression, bullying, and just inspire those at-risk children for to improve their self-esteem. Uh, you know, it's been shown that um, having a piano in a home improves one's IQ, the verbal, someone's verbal memory, literacy, performance in mathematics, and visual spatial processing. So there's there's studies that have demonstrated the benefits of having a piano in one's home and learning how to play that piano. So that's that's the idea. Take solicit donations of pianos not being used, fix them up, and place them in the homes of people that could, they could really make a benefit in their lives. In addition to that function, Pianos for People also offers free piano lessons, presents concerts and recitals for the community, and sponsors workshops open to the general public. They host a piano summer camp for youth during, uh, for youth during, uh, from the age of seven to seven to 18. I've been to a number of the recitals conducted by recipients of pianos and from the Pianos for People's program. And it's truly uplifting to hear, to see how well these children have done once they've received this piano and learned how to play it. And many of them have amazing skills that they would never have had the opportunity to learn how to play the piano, but for the, the efforts of pianos for people. That's an inspiring initiative, especially since um, even arts are not being taught in schools as much anymore. And instruments are very expensive, as we all know. And um, that summer camp is amazing, too, because... Also, when people are working, they can send their kids to school, and they can also um, do something that benefits them. I didn't even know about um, all the benefits of playing piano, like you said, with like anxiety and depression. So that's amazing. Yeah, no, it's, it's really it's a really cool program. So, what's on the horizon for the firm's pro bono program? Tell us about something new in the works. Um, you know, if you got time for one more, I'd like oh, to tell yeah, you one more interesting organization. Um, so there's an organization called the Great Rivers Greenway Foundation. And greenways are outdoor spaces connecting people and places. So in St. Louis, although the most visible greenways are 
biking, walking trails. The idea of a greenway is more than that. It's to encourage residents to get out, get fresh air, and better connect with their communities and fellow citizens. So the idea is to create a network throughout St. Louis of these greenways that, you know, people can go out and hike, bike, walk, just connect with their environment and their fellow citizens. Uh, currently, the Greenwood, the Great Rivers Greenway has created and established 113 miles of from what many people view as biking paths. And I've used one myself quite frequently. It's, you know, they got some great biking paths, but there's plans for to develop hundreds of more greenways throughout the St. Louis area and connect areas that would otherwise not be connected. So the organization was created in two, the year 2000 and, as I mentioned, already has achieved construction of 113 miles of bike paths. So the the achievements are visible throughout the St. Louis area. And the way they go about doing this is also noteworthy in that they form partnerships and alliances with other nonprofit organizations in St. Louis, as well as over the over 100 municipalities in the St. Louis area. St. Louis is, has a unique kind of structure in that there's over, over 100 cities within the St. Louis metropolitan area, and many of them are not interconnected or interrelated. So the idea is that the greenways through these bike paths will connect these communities which would otherwise not be connected. It's a great organization and it's one that's quite visible because, you know, the, the bike paths which have been established are, you know, go from the river to uh, other parts of the uh, other parts of the community. I think a lot of people don't realize that St. Louis is made up with those kind of like little neighborhoods and cities like that. Because we, the law firm project, recently went to St. Louis. And um, when I was helping kind of planning, where do we go from here to here? I was like, I can't believe that there's like all these different kind of like pockets, but they're all St. Louis. Mm -hmm. So what is on the horizon for the firm's pro bono program? Well, as I mentioned, uh, you know, we've last year we established this program to work with in-house legal departments uh, to, you know, give them attorneys and in-house legal departments an opportunity, the vehicle to provide pro bono services. And again, I hope that we can expand that program. It gives us, the firm, an opportunity to partner with our clients to strengthen that relationship, and more importantly, us for both of us to mutually benefit the community. So, you know, I think that's a unique program, maybe certainly non-traditional in my mind as far as the St. Louis area, and I think that's something that we, I hope we can develop um, in the coming year. Well, thank you, Scott, for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation today. I thank you for the opportunity. We truly appreciate the assistance that the Pro Bono Institute provides to law firms like us, as well as our other member firms in the Pro Bono Institute to, to, to achieve the goals of this important endeavor. And we, we appreciate the, the opportunity and the assistance that you provide. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Please take a moment to leave an Apple Podcast review. It is quick and easy to do. We would appreciate the feedback and would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and questions to pro bono at probonoinst.org.